0: My name is Tyler Johnson. I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church. Redemption Church is a multi congregational church, seven congregations throughout the state of Arizona. Uh, Each one of those has a lead pastor at that congregation. Ricardo Stewart is your lead pastor here in Tempe. My role is to give overall vision and direction. To the whole entire movement, if you will, of Redemption Church. And it's my delight to be with you in this series called The Summer Five, in which you're looking and tackling tough issues in the Christian life and in all of life. So, spiritual gifts, singleness, you addressed last week. We're in the third week. We're going to look at the topic of marriage. And the unique thing up to this point is that the format of this has been unique and different than normal. 20 minutes. ...of a sermon in 20 minutes of Q&A. Given the nature of this topic, I didn't feel this huge bur- burden to give a vehemently passionate sermon... Um, ...but to think of this more as a persuasive speech. If any of you have taken a speech class at any time, my desire is to create somewhat of a persuasive speech... ...for 30 minutes in which I would persuade you to see a Christian vision of marriage. Marriage is power marriage's problems that we see right now in our society and even in our churches, and then ultimately God's prescription for that. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, Our jumping off point is going to be Matthew chapter 19. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open to Matthew 19. Realize again, we're going to have 20 minutes of this and then 20 minutes of questions. So as you have questions along through this message. You can write them down. You're going to have an opportunity to text them in. um, Make sure you do that. Let's pray before we get into this topic of marriage. Father, we come before you tonight um, wanting you to open our eyes to the realities of how you view marriage, how you view the world and what marriage is in the midst of the world. God, I fully understand here that there are many people in this room in which marriage has presented tremendous amounts of problems for them. And people right now who are experiencing a lot of problems and maybe even trauma uh, because of marriage, and yet there's many also in this room who are rejoicing because of it and who love it. And so God, God, Wherever somebody sits right now, I pray that we would weep with those who are experiencing um, horrors inside of marriage. And I pray that we would uh, rejoice with those who are experiencing the joys of marriage. And even those who may not be married but want to be, God, that they would receive clarity. Um, But all of us, God, would understand the power of this and the way in which you view it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm almost a decade and a half into my ministry life since I've been a pastor of some kind. And in the midst of you know coming up on 14 to 15 years of ministry, you end up doing a lot of weddings. And when you do weddings, there are certain elements of your wedding ceremony that are more important than others. One of the great things about doing a wedding is that nobody would argue with you that you read your wedding ceremony. So you can write the whole thing out and just read it, and nobody goes, all he was doing is looking at his notes and reading it. So you don't have to do a lot of preparation if you already have it written, but when you put together a wedding ceremony, a lot of it just surrounds the main point, which is the vows, the commitment that somebody makes when they stand on a stage and they make these vows of commitment to one another. Well, one of the first weddings I did, not the first one that I ever did, the first one I ever did, I forgot to tell the people when the bride was walked down the aisle, you may be seated. So they stood for like half of the wedding ceremony just stayed in there because I forgot to say you may be seated. But in this one, it was worse than that. Um, I was doing the wedding ceremony and in the midst of the wedding ceremony, there were pastors in the crowd, one of which was my father-in-law who taught me a lot about ministry, I didn't grow up in the church, I wasn't around pastoral ministry, He taught me a lot about it, leaned over to his wife and said to her, he's coming to the end of the ceremony and he forgot the vows. Okay. To which she says, there's no way he forgot the vows. And he says, no, he's landing the plane. He forgot the vows. And sure enough, I say, "You know, you may kiss your bride and I never did the vows. Now, About a month before that, in this wedding ceremony, I was taught by somebody in kind of when you're in your ministry development, one of the topics was weddings and funerals, and the guy said this. A wedding is not a wedding without the vows. So when I was told afterwards, hey, you forgot the vows, the first thing was as I was running these people going, don't consummate your marriage. Like you're not actually married. You can't go to the marriage bed because in fact, we never did the vows before God. That's a joke, but that's (laughs) telling you The vows are extremely important. Now, here are the vows. You've heard them, and they sound very poetic to most people, but the vows are this statement that you've heard before, is that somebody is committing. I would say to my wife, Haley, I, Tyler, take you, Haley, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, as long as we both Shall live. Now, most of us view those vows as very poetic and, hey, that's very nice, but I don't think many of us understand how committal those vows really are. Because in our culture, and certainly in this room, there's something that seeps deep within us that we worship at the altar of comfort, convenience, safety, and security. We worship at the altar. These are idols, things that we literally worship, that we are about and we believe we're entitled to, comfort, convenience, safety, and security, and let me tell you that the vows that you say in a wedding, I so-and-so take you and so-and-so to be my spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, that's not comfortable, for rich or for poor, that's not convenient. In sickness and in health, that isn't safe or secure. In plenty and in want, as long as we both shall live forever, until death do us part, I'm making these vows of commitment to you. When we were going through our premarital counseling, my wife and I read a book that was brand new at the time by a guy named Gary Thomas that was called Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle of the book and the statement he wanted to make over and over was this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, I like that statement, and I don't like it. Let me tell you why I like it. I like it because our culture so defines happiness in those four areas, comfort, convenience, safety, security. Our culture defines happiness, and most of you all believe this, as though it's about me. Happiness is about getting what I want. So therefore I love this cuz it's provocative, it punches us on the face, in the face at some level to say what if marriage isn't fundamentally about your happiness, but it's about your holiness. What I don't like about it is it separates those two things, holiness and happiness. So it's like, hey, marriage is a training chamber that isn't very happy, you know. It's kind of like hell. You want to sign up, right? Yeah, I'm for that, right? Like, holiness. And most of us look at holiness like that. Like, I know I need it. It's kind of like a salad at McDonald's, you know? Like, I know I should eat that, but that's awful. Like, why would I go to McDonald's and get a salad? But the way the Bible presents holiness, just hear me in this. The way the Bible presents holiness is utmost humanity. You being more fully human, think about it, God himself is holy. He said, be holy as I am holy. We are made in the image of God. That's fundamentally the Christian definition of what it means to be human. So being made holy is being made more human, experiencing the abundant life. What if God made marriage to make you more human, and sin was that which was sucking the life out of you and making you less and less human. Sin is that force in the world that is even inside your very heart that is dehumanizing you. What if marriage were made for that? All of a sudden, that changes the ballgame. Marriage has a profound power to it. It's historically true. This is the first point in this persuasive speech is that marriage is incredibly powerful in two areas. In community development, by that I mean for the greater good of society and for the development of your character. If you've ever taken a history course before, you've heard a name, whether you remember it or whether you don't, but the name is Alexis de Tocqueville. How many of you guys remember hearing that name at all? You've heard it. For the rest of you guys, you don't listen in school. Listen. Alexis de Tocqueville was a, pre, uh, a French philosopher, primarily a political philosopher, in that what he was really interested in is the development of Western democracy 18th, um, in the 1800s. He was living, and he came to look at the development of the United States. How was this society developing with such force and such power? And here's what he said. The quote's going to be on the screens. He said, if anyone asks me what I think is the chief cause of the extraordinary prosperity and growing power of this nation, I should answer that it is due to the superiority of their women and family life. The superiority of their women and family life. Well, what makes their women and family life superior? Certainly, of all the countries in the world, America is the one in which the marriage tie is most respected. And where the highest and truest conception of conjugal, that means marital, Happiness has been conceived. So here's what he says. Their women are stronger and their family life is stronger because the marriage tie is respected where the highest, in this place, where the highest and truest conception of conjugal marital happiness has been conceived. Now, I am not a fan of waving the American flag next to the cross. In fact, I think it's heresy, to be totally honest with you. That said, the reason I speak to this is Alexis de Tocqueville is a Frenchman looking at the development of a flourishing society and putting it fundamentally at the core around marriage. Societies throughout the history of the world have always recognized this union of a man and a woman fundamentally because they knew in closest proximity where children are raised that the people are developed for the greater society. People are developed in marriage and in family that they would honor and recognize that because citizens for a public commons, people that participate in all of the aspects of human life are formed most. In whom they are around the most. And Alexis de Tocqueville is saying marriage is no minor matter. In fact, 50 years before women ever had the right to vote in the United States, there were Indian philosophers who were saying in India that the key to the empowerment of women and to the empowerment of family was monogamy. Monogamy meaning A man and a woman committed to each other and only to each other. There weren't multiple wives. There was one commitment, one to each other, that that empowered women because women didn't now, men weren't just off going to whatever women they wanted. And if they didn't like what their wife said, they went to their concubine or to their other wife. But when their woman looked at them and said, hey, your stuff stinks too, and let me tell you how, they all of a sudden had to go, Okay, I guess I got to listen to this, that in a monogamous marriage, when the door is not open at the back, when things get hot and the pressure cooker gets turned up, you can't just talk, take off the lid and say, hey, I'm out of here. The door's closed, right? That's what Jesus says in this passage that we read in Matthew chapter 19. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate The back door's not open, it's closed. And in our society, where we try to keep every door open because it's all about me, the problem is you never know what it's like to go through the pressure cooker, to experience the joys of the relationship when it's gone through hard times, to experience the formation of your character when you've gone through hard times, when you've actually fulfilled the vows of for better, for worse. Because in a me society, we go, when it gets worse, this isn't comfortable, this isn't convenient, I'm out of here. And we never experience the value. Do you know statistics say that the people who say that their marriages are bad right now, if they were to give it five years and say, I'm in for five years, at the end of the five years, the vast majority of them say that their marriages aren't just kind of better, but substantially better. That is beneficial to society. God says, even people that aren't Christians would say fundamentally, it is better for society and it's better for our character formation. But there's problems with that. There's problems not with that, but with marriage in our society. And the fundamental problem is that we exist in a me-oriented society. The problems in how we view marriage are fundamentally around misinformation and misdefinition, which leads to an ultimate misunderstanding. Misinformation. There is all this information out there right now about the horrible state that marriage is in in our society. Tim Anderson, before the first service, told me about a recent book that's just come out called The Good News About Marriage, in which a guy goes out and just does economics. Economics meaning numbers. He just really studies the facts, and he says there's all these myths out there. Miss like, you know, the vast majority of people in their marriages are unhappy. And the way people develop that is they have this, this stat of 50% of marriages all end in divorce. And then people go, well, some people aren't getting divorced, but they're staying in their marriages, which would mean the majority of people in their marriages aren't happy. And this guy says, actually, we've done the substantial research and up to 80% of people are actually happy in their marriages. And in fact, the statement of 50% of marriages end in divorce, he says is an absolute myth. So there's a misinformation out there about the power and the blessing of marriage fundamentally. Why it's out there, I don't know. I don't know what's behind that, what's out there. But there's misinformation in which many of you sitting in these seats have a skewed view about what marriage really is. But fundamentally, we have a skewed view because our culture has so bought into this lie of this radical, gross individualism that we have defined marriage as about me. Do you know in the history of the world, we are one of the first cultures, and this will come into some other things when we get into the Q&A, I'm assuming, in the history of the world that have defined marriage primarily about us through individualistic means. Most societies have always entered into it because it's for the great good of society and the great good of my character formation. Tim Keller, in his excellent book called The Meaning of Marriage, says this. Both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community. You've heard me say those two words, and just to inform you, Tim Keller did not steal those from me. I stole them from him. Okay. Both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They're looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires, right? So you're sitting there at that moment going, I need to fulfill my, me, my emotional, sexual, spiritual desires. He then concludes, that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will ever find the right person to marry, or a deep pessimism that the person you actually found that you now are married is actually the right person to marry. Because when it's all about you, you fundamentally go, I just want to find somebody that I'm going to marry that isn't going to be all about changing me. And then that person believes the same cultural lies and comes in and goes, I just want to find somebody who isn't about changing me and just accepts me for me. You don't even believe that about yourself. Right? Like you go to bed at night going, I wish I was different like this. I wish I was different like this. I wish I was different. But then you come into marriage and go, but it's all about me, so you better not impose upon me and try to change me. Most cultures throughout the history of the world have said, that's fundamentally what marriage is about. Marriage is a school of character development. But we've said, oh, it's the place where all of my needs will be met. And I'm gonna marry a guy with a lot of money and it's gonna give me more opportunity or I'm gonna marry that trophy wife and when everybody looks at her, they're gonna go, oh wow, he must be something special or I'm gonna marry somebody that's gonna fulfill all of my sexual desires that have been more informed by lies of pornography than they actually have the reality of love and marriage. And then we wonder why our views of marriage are sc- skewed and screwed up. Is because we believe it's fundamentally all about me and in turn, we miss out because god says humanity isn't all about you you being fully human is actually when you recognize humanity the way god made you to be is all about other people not when it's all fundamentally about me jesus's view of marriage and god's view of marriage is extraordinarily profound and it's mysterious it is mysterious, it is profound, but it's extremely powerful. And it's about a covenant. It's about a fundamental commitment that says, for better for worse, where the me culture says it's all about consumerism. It's all about consumerism, not about covenant. Here's the prescription. The way God views marriage, and we're going to end on this and then go to Q&A. The way God views marriage is that it's a school of community and character development. It is the place where you make a covenant and you say, I am entering in to a covenant commitment in which I will subordinate, submit my individual impulses to my spouse and to my family. It's called responsibility. You live in a world and we live in a society that lies to you and says that freedom is found with the least amounts of responsibility and the least amount of commitment. God says, in fact, that's totally totally a lie that the greatest amount of freedom and delight and joy in life comes from responsibility and comes from covenant and comes from commitment it comes from giving your life away submitting your impulses to somebody else and that's true in marriage and outside of marriage marriage teaches us about that it schools us in that marriage is this place where males and females Come together the unique way in which they are designed and males and females both mesh with one another right there's both a meshing with males and females and there's a clashing because of sin which creates this incredible picture of what God's doing in the world and simultaneously this incredible moment for the schooling of character. Marriage also creates a secured environment for human development, both you and your spouse and for the children that are raised. I remember when I was a, a kid, having this moment with my dad in the car, when I was th- kind of seeing all these families get divorced, and I said, dad, have you ever thought about divorcing mom? Now, just so you know, I did not grow up in a Christian family. And he says to me, Tyler, we have a ton of challenges, and I know you see us fight, but that's never an option. And the security that brought me as a kid And I know in turn what that forced my mom and dad into of going the back door isn't open was to expose all of each other's junk and to begin to work through it together. Not always perfectly, but to work through it together so that they would be schooled and that the family that they created would be secure fundamentally. Here's the last thing I want to say about marriage before we get to Q&A. Being a good spouse in marriage is nothing more and nothing less than being a good Christian. So if you sit in here and you go, I'm terrified of marriage, but you're trying to follow Jesus, Allah, be a Christian, being a good spouse in marriage is nothing more or nothing less than being a good Christian. And being a good Christian, Jesus defines as this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, putting their needs ahead of your own, and in so doing, you will find your life. All right, on that notion, let's move to Q&A. I don't know if Benjamin is around here or not. We're, all right, we are going to, wow, light it up with the easy question right off the bat. All right, we're gonna move to Q&A. Here's, let me start um, with this thought on Q&A. There is no possible way in a setting like this I can do justice to any of these questions. I will do my best But I'm trying to crack a door open in which you would think differently and then go to other people that are around you in this church, to your pastors, to explore um, these questions deeper. The beauty of Q&A is you guys get to ask um, whatever it is that you you want, and I'll do the best I can while being honest with you guys that I'm not going to do justice to these. So how do you think Christians should think and respond to same-sex marriage or, as this says, uh, gay marriage? Let me walk you through a way in which to think about this because we're speaking from a standpoint of being Christians and there's some things I need to say in order for you to really understand this. The first one is this. If you're sitting in this room um, as a Christian and or as someone that wouldn't identify you yourself with following Jesus, therefore not a Christian, here's the first thing you need to understand. We believe this is God's word. We believe that the Bible is the true story of the whole world. We believe in it being God's word, that the God who created, what the Bible says is that there is a God who created everything we see and everything we can't see. He made everything, was made by him and for him. Therefore, we think things flourish and exist best and function best when they function according to their design. Okay, so that's fundamental. We believe this is God's word. We believe that the world, if this is true truth, this isn't just truth for Christians, but we believe this is the truth for the whole world. That's what Christians believe about the Bible. This is true for the whole world. We believe that when the world submits itself to God's intentions, the way he created it, the world, us as individuals, and all of the community and society around us will flourish best in that reality So then you get to sexuality, and you say at the beginning of Genesis, God created them male and female. Matthew 19, the passage that we read and that I referenced in this um, talk, says specifically, God created them male and female, and then God brings them together, and what God has joined together, let no man separate We believe fundamentally that sexual union, according to the scripture, is union between a male and a female. If you want to hear our stance on homosexuality, which is in this question... Um, but you want to hear it more fully, go back in our Roman series, and in Romans chapter one, we did two messages at every one of our congregations, one about a theology of homosexuality, and then a way in which we should practice and live out that theology in the world. But Christians, and historic Christians, as well as every Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all believe fundamentally that Sexual relationship and unification happens heterosexually and in the construct of marriage. Okay, in the construct of marriage. We may get to that fuller, why sex outside of marriage isn't God's ideal or design, therefore not your best. So that's sexuality. The next question we have to get to to answer this is about the government. Because what this question is fundamentally about and the debates about in our society is fundamentally about what the government should recognize as marriage in a society that's pluralistic. Allah, not everybody believes what I said about the Bible, even though I would say that's truth, according to there is a one God who functions the world like this, even though this, we live in a pluralistic society. Not everybody believes like this. So if everybody doesn't believe like this, how are you to say that's what marriage and all the benefits that go along with marriage that the government gives, how are you to say that what you believe gets the credit and what everybody else get, gets isn't the credit? So how should Christians view same-sex marriage? And I would tell you, it fundamentally has to do with how the Christians view government. And Christians should believe, biblically speaking, from Romans 12 13, and 13, fundamentally, that government is given by God for the sake of creating flourishing and the most loving society possible, for and to do justice to all people that are there, whether they're Christians or any other faith tradition or wouldn't even recognize a God at all, that government is there to do justice to all and to institute laws and practices for the flourishing of society. So when governments establish a recognition of marriage, it's for the purpose of saying, setting up and recognizing this institution is for the greater good of the totality of society. And I agree, there should not be discrimination in a public commons and in a society. That said, the institution of marriage has in the history of the world, not just the West, always been recognized as the unification between a man and a woman if we believe government is given by God the more we can establish laws and recognition of institutions that reflect God's design will create the greater good of society so if the question is only about benefits Um, In the last few nights, I watched a, a dialogue Piers Morgan was having with Susie Orman, financial guru gal, and there was a guy in the crowd, Ryan T. Anderson, that was trying to defend what they call traditional marriage, male and female, and in the midst of this conversation... It was astounding because Piers Morgan at one point said to the Ryan Anderson, how in the world can you stand this close to this woman and say that you should get all the benefits of marriage, but because she doesn't believe like you and it's homosexual, she shouldn't? Okay, now, a couple thoughts on that, first off. One is so you realize the whole conversation was about the individual, what the individual gets, not about the public commons as a whole. Secondly, it really disregarded the fact of Do we think, and I'm not saying this is the final linchpin knockout punch, but we better take recognition of this. If in the history of the world we are the first society to ever just be enlightened enough to reestablish and redefine what marriage has been historically, I would say we better hold just a minute, hold the phone if you will, and go, do we really think that we've come that far, that we are just now the most enlightened people to really establish this secondly as a Christian there's certain ways you have to view this thing that said let me end with this there are ways in which we could have a different conversation that doesn't mean redefining marriage to say can people in unions with each other establish the same benefits tax benefits all those kind of things that somebody would in marriage if all it is is about benefits let's have that conversation I would argue as opposed to a redefinition Fundamentally, of marriage, I'll end with this. I don't personally see how a Christian with that logic of what the Word of God is, how we view sexuality, what we believe government is for, could come out at the end of the conclusion and say, I'm pro same sex marriage. That said, we do have to have the conversation in public forum. So that was a long question needed. So, what advice would you give married couples? Who are not happy in their marriage doesn 't God want us to be happy too? Um, let me start by saying this god 's more committed to your happiness than you are that 's true he 's way more committed to your happiness than even you are there 's a passage in first Peter chapter three that speaks to wives fundamentally um, in in specific about how they should act when their husbands aren't obeying the word, likely are not Christians or not living in line of what God said a flourishing marriage and a good marriage should really look like. It says, what should you do in that environment where your husband may not even be obeying the word and treating you like trash? It says, they may be one. You can win them without a word by by your conduct when they see your respect and your purity. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Win them without a word with your very conduct. So it's been said in societies for a long time that it's become this adage that more is caught than is taught. Or you will influence people more by your actions than you will by your words. The Bible affirms that. It doesn't say don't use words, but it says when you're in very tough situations, even if in the end Jesus says that person is your enemy, the answer is love them as you would love yourself. Look for ways in which you can serve them. So here's a test I would say to you. The advice I'd give to a married couple who's not happy is to say this for the next two months, let me get really specific, for the next two months, get a list out and really work to find in your spouse all the things you're thankful for. Because what we do when we're unhappy is we succumb to all the ways we're ungrateful. And the Bible says that the heart of true Christian theology is a heart of gratitude. Think about all the ways you're thankful for them and then develop another list. What are all the ways that you could serve them? What are ways you know that they would be blessed? Commit to that for two months, and I would bet anything that at least your happiness factor has ticked up a little bit because you've made your happiness bound up in the good of the other person. Rather than binding your happiness up in what they do for you, you've bound it up in what you can do for them. That said, let me pause and say this. If everything's to be oriented from a biblical perspective through the lens of love, There are situations in which somebody treats you in such horrible means that it isn't best to allow them to even stay there. It may not be safe for you, and it may not be good for them. In that notion, 1 Peter 3 is not saying, hey, put your head down in the midst of an abusive situation and just be really nice to them. No, love would say what that person is doing to you is in fact fact horribly harmful to them, and you need to take the respective means to help them, and in turn, also get yourself out of what may be dangerous situations. So don't in any way envision that as saying you succumb to an abusive situation. But what our culture needs fundamentally bad is to understand how do we stay in a covenant commitment for the purpose of forming our character and for the purpose of of blessing the other as well. All right, what are some practical ways for singles who want to be married, to train their habits for selflessness and responsibility? That is a great question. So if you are in there, give yourself a gold star. That is a great question. That is the way the question should be asked. What are ways to train yourself? Paul tells Timothy that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value in all things. And godliness in the Bible is defined in very many ways, like selflessness and responsibility, ways in which you can train yourself. Um, Think through multiple ways in which you can serve, ways in which you can serve the roommates you're living with or ways in which you can serve your family rather than always thinking about walking in those environments and what they should have done. What are the same ways I said an unhappy marriage could experience greater happiness is through service. Look at the ways that you can die to yourself to serve somebody else in the environments that are around you directly now, in your job, in your living situation, in your family situation if you have it, in your neighborhood if you're there, and then look beyond that as well. What are ways in which I can sacrifice my time when I could be going out just to do things for me and I can go out and fundamentally serve? Find the ways in which you can die to yourself and sacrifice and it feel sacrificial for the benefit of somebody else. And then put yourself in situations where people rely upon you. So enter into that children's ministry opportunity that says you're gonna make a commitment for the next six months. And you're like, six months? I don't know if I want to commit for six months. Whatever those kinds of things are, serving in that community organization, opportunities that raise your responsibility, make you die to yourself, and give you opportunities for greater service. All right, next question. What is God's view of a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, let me start and say the way that that question is phrased. If you are married... He considers it marriage. He considers you fulfill the vows that you made. Look at First Peter chapter 3, understand, win them without a word, love them like crazy, but if you're married, you're married. If you're not married, it's really simple. He says, don't marry a non-Christian. That's, that's as easy as it is, is that your Christianity, the faith of Christianity in our culture um, has been viewed as an add-on. Like I have my life and I have all these components of it and I add my faith to this. That is not the way Jesus even presents itself as an option. Jesus does not present that as an option. Jesus presents Christianity as like, hey, come follow me. And a guy says, I want to follow you, but I got to go back and bury, you know, some of my relatives. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You're either going to follow me or you're not. If you aren't willing to deny father, mother, brother, sister, you're not worthy to be called my disciples. Now, just by the way, Jesus is not saying deny your mother, father, brother, sister, but what he is saying is that you are willing to leave everything else. We just dealt with this in the parables. We're willing to sell and to leave everything else to gain this, to gain Christ. Christianity does not present itself as an add-on. But it presents itself is, this is the true story of the whole world. Jesus is the one whom you were made by and for. You follow him, and it's everything. If it's everything, and the closest, most important relationship in your life will be your marriage, that seems like the obvious equation. This doesn't equal this, which doesn't mean we don't love, we don't have friendships, we don't engage people that are not of the faith, but it means marriage is not an option. And and the Bible's very clear with that. All right, next one. People have used the Bible against interracial marriage. I want to marry interracially. What are your views? Um, Those people are grossly unbiblical, okay? Like grossly, grossly, grossly unbiblical. In fact, so much so that tons of the New Testament, not some, tons of the New Testament, The argument that's happening in the book of Ephesians, the argument that's happening in the book of Galatians, is people who identify their race as more important than grace or humanity. By the way, let me just tell you, biblically speaking, I get, uh, I'm pretty sympathetic with just overall societal language, but the, the idea of race in general is a very unbiblical concept. There's ethnicities and there's one race, it's the human race and there's ethnicities, but when we put it into racial terms, like there's a different division, race of people, that's not even true, beyond Bible, that's just not true, humans are humans, if you do the DNA studies, humans are humans, like the vast majority of us, are alike at every single level. Humans are humans. Therefore, the argument in Galatians and Ephesians consistently is these walls that have been erected between people for whatever reason, generational walls, ethnic walls, cultural walls, all in Christ have been broken down and destroyed so that we're all one in Christ, that Paul says in the book of Colossians, here, there is no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all, because what God is doing is establishing humanity. Sin is what erects the barriers. Grace, in God's entrance, the kingdom entering in, is what destroys those barriers. So fundamentally, um, my view would be, marry somebody who loves Jesus. I'd love to see more people that are, the world says that's really, really different. How did that ever happen beyond ethnicity to say that's only in Christ? That's true in the church too. That's the way churches should be after reflecting things that are very different, not just a tribe of people who would be the same people hanging out at any local restaurant or club or coffee house because they're all alike, but that in the church, it should really have substantial amounts of diversity. All right. All right. If you are in a relationship with someone and plan to marry that person, why is it not okay to have sex before marriage? So I said to you earlier that this, I thought this question would get brought up and it did because you people want to have sex, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, And rightfully so, you're humans. Um, Here's the deal. Uh, There is this view that sex is just, It's just this human reality like eating. Why shouldn't we just be able to do it? Why does it matter? Why are everybody so caught up in this whole entire deal? C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he says, if that were true, if sexuality was just an appetite just like eating, why is it that you can't walk into Manzanita, the dorm at ASU, and see guys with posters on their walls of half-covered bananas, right? Or of half-covered pears, (laughs) or half-covered hamburgers. Right? That sounds ridiculous, right? His point is to go, that's absurd. Like, it's not an appetite just like something else. And the Bible speaks to that, that all other sins are outside the body, but this is a one that goes fundamentally deep to the core of who you are. Let me say one more thing. Why is it that when people have sex for the first time, males and females alike, there's this intrinsic impulse in them to roll over and say, I love you, even if it's a one night stand? Like, what is that? Whether you're a Christian or not, you have to wrestle with that reality. That there is something profound about sexuality that God says is only safe and secure and to flourish in the confines of a covenant commitment. And a covenant commitment means it is the desire to enter into a commitment relationally that is stamped and formalized and in majority of history formalized by, by a wider societal norm called marriage in which you go, I'm all in. When you make that marriage contract, the way it's supposed to happen from society's perspective, the government's perspective, and certainly from God's perspective, is with no prenuptial agreements. It isn't, there isn't something on the side where you're writing, hey, if it goes bad, you don't get any of this. It's literally uniting this and you saying to somebody, listen, I'm all in and you could crush me. That's the only way you experience the benefit of that. So in the end, to say I will have sex with all, all of the other commitment isn't good for you and isn't good for the other person. This is why Paul to the Corinthians says, do you not understand that when you, unite, when you have, unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her? What he's saying is, do you not understand that when you have sex with a prostitute, you become one flesh? Now, do you think his logic in that of saying one flesh is saying, Do you not know that when you have sex with a prostitute, you have sex with a prostitute? You'd be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That isn't what he's saying. He's saying, do you not understand when you enter into this physical union, you are expressing something and experiencing something that's meant to have its totality of one flesh. I'm all in with you at every level. When you divorce sex from that covenant commitment, you're literally saying, you don't have any commitment to me. You don't have any responsibility to me. But we get all of these benefits of you becoming totally naked and exposed before me for your own and my own thrills. And we leave presuming that will have no effect. And God says it will have dramatic effect, dehumanizing effect, in fact. So God's view of marriage inside a covenant commitment, or God's view of sex inside a covenant commitment called marriage isn't just a rule to go, hey man, I'm turning off the faucet on that one. You just can't have that blessing, right? And he's going, ha, 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 ha. You know, like, you're not gonna get that. He's saying, no, I love you. And this is a great gift of God meant to be expressed in great confines, like fire. Fire's great in a fireplace. But if it gets outside of the fireplace... That's a problem, right? That's a problem. And that's the way he views um, sex. I understand that redemption is complementarian. What does that mean? Why is that funny? (laughs) All right, complementarianism, just take the word. It means complement. Complementarianism at its core, to make it really simple, starts off and means this. We do not believe God made males and females the same. We believe he made them equal yet different that males and females are by God's design equal but different. And he made them such to complement one another, not just for your purposes, but for the reflection of himself. Follow me. I'm going to get a little theological here for a minute. But the world, the Bible says, is held together, consists in God. The world... In him, all things consist. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You will never experience reality outside an understanding of God. Okay, never understand that. So God is constantly putting himself on display. The psalmist says, the world, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. He's constantly putting himself on display. God is better displayed in male and female than he would be in a society of just males. Okay, okay. That means the body of Christ is better reflected with males and females than just males, okay? But males and females are different. God is spoken of in feminine terms, and he's spoken of in masculine terms. Complementarianism, when it becomes controversial or a conversation, has to do with roles. How does a woman function as a woman? How does a man function as a man? Which really comes to a, a head funny enough that I would use that word, ahead in marriage and in the church around this idea, this is why it's funny, called headship and this idea that the Bible calls submission. Now, Jesus reflects and God inside the Trinity reflects both. There's times where Jesus himself is the head, the conquering one in which people submit to him and there's times where he submits to the Father's will for the greater good of society. So in the end to women. If, if submission uh, was not bad. But brought good. For the second person of the Trinity. I'm telling you it's fine for you. You can experience substantial amounts of life. The problem is. When you view submission. As to an authority or a head. That is all about power mongering. And about themselves. But if you were Submitting to a head and authority that believed their fundamental authority was given for the sake of sacrificial service, I promise you there's not a person in this room that would have a problem submitting to that. And the idea is that God himself in Trinity reflects that reality and we're meant to live that out in the home and in the church. Now let me be very clear, that isn't stated to be true in the wider world that doesn't understand the gospel truth of these realities outside so in the home, the husband's spoken of as head and the wife as helper coming alongside and they lead the home together through this reality of complementing each other, females being females, males uh, being males. Inside the church, um, it's spoken of in a, in a very similar way, only at the level that the elders of the church, we believe in Redemption Church, are to be men. Now you may really resist in that and let me start by saying this. The church has been grossly deficient in utilizing the whole body of Christ, functioning in its giftedness. We have... Um, lacked the blessing of that. There's a woman named Carolyn Custis James who wrote an excellent book called Half the Church in which she is arguing vehemently that the church would greater utilize the giftedness, the experience, the expertise, the uniqueness of women in the church and we recognize that. We could even do far better than that and the church at large should do and could do far better at that at that there is this reality we believe the Bible teaches that in the uh, the constructs of a local church that the, the elders who oversee the church are to be males empowering uh, women and men to operate in their giftedness and that you need to talk to your pastors to get the details of that even more but that's what complementarian is what are your top three books to prep for marriage um, great question Gary Thomas's book that I mentioned, Sacred Marriage, is uh, a great read. He's also recently wrote a book, and you could look for it, but on preparing for marriage specifically that's newer and has a workbook with it. I don't know the title, but Gary Thomas. uh, If you type in Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage, you could get to his website and find all of those while somebody's writing this up. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, um, which is where that quote uh, came from. And... um, Tell me a book, Benjamin. Um, meaning of Marriage, Sacred Marriage. Uh, there's, there's a book, what's that? Uh, this, momentary this Momentary Marriage by John Piper. And then there's a, also a book called No Ordinary Marriage by a pastor in Paradise Valley, uh, Tim Savage as well. Those are two um, good books. And then there's also another book called The Mystery of Marriage um, that, are, that are all good. So there's a lot of marriage books that are really good, but those two. All right, last question. How can marriage reflect the gospel to a watching world? I really believe that in our culture um, and in our day and age, there may be, there's very few things that could represent and reflect the gospel more than marriage. And God intends that to happen. In Ephesians chapter five, there's this way in which husbands and wives should function in marriage. And these roles that I was talking about before displayed. And then he concludes with this. He says, this mystery is profound. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And what he's saying is that God has instituted marriage in the world to show the world how he loves the world. So how we should forgive each other in marriage is displayed when we're living out the gospel fundamentally. How we should put the needs of someone else as more significant than your own. A good marriage the fundamental arc to it presents the gospel. It narrates, tells the story of the gospel in a good marriage. Here's what I mean. A good marriage is always going to put at the center of it, the good of the other, as more significant. The needs of the others is more significant than your own. That's the crux and core of the gospel. So watch what Jesus did. Jesus, Philippians 2, who was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Though he was God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death. Why? Well, John 3 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he takes this curve of, I know I'm this, but I'm gonna die to myself. He who wants to be first among you will become last. Last. He who wants to find his life will lose it. You want to follow Jesus? Take up your cross and follow me. Die. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. So the arc of good marriage is that you're willing to die to yourself for the benefit of somebody else. For Jesus so loved the world that he gives his only begotten son to die for our good. And in establishing our good and lifting us up, he finds his resurrection and God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. So here's the logic of how the gospel is narrated in a good gospel-oriented focused kingdom-oriented marriage, is of somebody who's willing to put the needs of someone else as more important than their own, die to themselves, sacrificially serve somebody for their good. Bind your good up in somebody else's good. You say I will find my good only in their good. And in their good, you too find yours, Allah the resurrection. In your death, somebody else gets raised up, and in their being raised up, you too as well are raised up. That is the telling of the story of the gospel in marriage. And if we were able to do that, is Redemption Church, the church is large in Phoenix, in the United States and around the world, I promise you, people would be able to look at that and go, this is profound. And we'd be able to say, this reflects Christ and his love for the world and his calling of a people. So let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Uh, Your gospel is profound. It's amazing. And God, your word comforts us, God, when we feel afflicted. And yet, God, for many of us uh, that we're comfortable, this word can afflict us as well. So your word comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit's power, we would be willing to surrender ourselves to your loving, loving lordship, believing that what you know about life is better than what we think about it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.